0: I wear this pretty heavy, this work. Mm. It feels like mission. It feels like mahi, as as it gets called in New Zealand, purpose. It's a constant quest for me to wear it lighter. I don't think I'll ever be like, oh, it's just a job. It's just work. But yeah, finding ways to be like, it's all right to to put it down for a bit. Fill my cup and come back at it from a, a fuller place.
1: Welcome back to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions professionals talk about what it's like to have big feelings of their own. I'm Graham Panther. Once again, I'm here with Gareth Edwards. Hey folks. And today we're answering another listener question, which is, does work-life balance really exist? <laughs> I saw that question, and there's a few variations on that question, again, that have come through, and I thought... Who better to ask of that than the man who, in my life, has the most work-life balance I've ever seen, (laughs) Gareth Edwards.
0: Why, thank you. That's high accolade.
1: (laughs) So, I'm going to read... Okay, there's a a few feedback bits we've got from, from listeners. This one is... What have they said? My burning question is... Does it get easier in time to compartmentalize the two facets of my daily mental processing? As in, will I get better at simply leaving conversations at work and not taking them home with me and ruminating on them? Because this is something I fear as I see it as the only obstacle that could keep me away from furthering my career within the peer support, lived experience, workforce, and opportunities. Wow. Yep. So a big one there, and that's from a peer worker who's been in the role, uh, they said, one to three years in that, in that kind of newish range. I do have another one I could throw at you.
0: Yeah, go for it, yeah. Let's just happen.
1: This is from someone working in a forensic setting, and they said, how do you compartmentalize? And then they added, I'm unable to afford therapy. Ooh. So both of these questions—they're mentioning there's a bunch to go at here, eh? But but both of them are mentioning com- this, this c word compartmentalising. Mm. So I wanted to start there first off, Gareth. What do you think of this idea of compartmentalising? And what are we even talking about when we say that?
0: Yeah, it feels like a it
2: feels like a premature solution.
0: You know. And a bit of a tactic that I'm not sure that I've ever really personally found useful. I think I, I think if you're saying how can I, then it possibly means you haven't got a natural way of doing it. Like if that's still a thing that you're searching, and there might be other options for you. I was thinking about the the ruminating on conversations which which I've done plenty of and I'm still prone to. I saw this other thing and I think, I think it's reasonably common enough for me to say it without feeling like an absolute fool. But often it would happen in the shower, in the morning shower, getting ready to go to work. And hi- I would have hypothetical conversations mm. of like, and if they said that, I would totally say this, and, mm. you know, and in the shower, <laughs> you know, <laughs> about things that hadn't happened and may never happen. Yeah but I knew what I would say if they did, you know? So I don't know, what, I don't know what the opposite of ruminating is, like pre-ruminating or something.
1: So is this people who you're supporting in,
0: in a support role? Uh, that was usually bosses, to be fair.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, or going in for meetings and you need to be seeing somebody, but, oh, you know, they'll say this, and then my combat line will be this, and I'll make a really good point about that as well. And, yep. Yeah. And yep. then you get there, the meeting's cancelled, you're like, damn it, all that prep work in the showers has just gone to waste. <laughs> do you still do that uh no no and this is what i mean i developed a tactic to stop that because i found that that's that's reasonably common in lots of people it's not just Mm. our industry Mm. and our sector Mm. so in terms of like compartmentalizing it's almost like if i can stop that incessant train of nonsense because that is nonsense that's based on nothing whereas i think ruminating has got some value yeah if i can divert myself away from it and find something else to focus on and think about, then that's, that's my tactic for not allowing it to dominate my inside, inside of my skull.
1: That's interesting. So let's say you're in the shower, you've got a big meeting later today, you notice that, you know, I'm assuming you're all prepped, you know what you need to do, but now there's this whole other kind of layer of just
0: chatter. Yeah. What,
1: what might you do in that scenario?
0: Uh, I think in the emergency scenario, I would sing or... Um, I used to have this phrase actually that kind of disrupting negative thoughts. I'd just say yadda, yadda, yada.
2: Hmm.
0: As if, like, it's just gibberish in my head. Mm. And just saying that a few times would disrupt the circle. Mm-hmm. And then I go, okay, do you still want to think about it? Or do you want to think about, you know, you know a holiday you had or what you're going to have for tea or just something that's a little bit less sort of naggy, mm. a bit more mundane? It's good to have mundane thoughts, mm. you know? Yeah. yeah. But then there's something else that I try now. And it's a bit woo-woo, but it really worked for me the other day. You and I had a an in-person, real-life um, session. And I was there a little bit early, as is my want. And um, I was sat in the cafe nearby. Uh, purposely not the cafe near we, where we were meeting, in case some of the other people arrived early. I just wanted some space on my own, so I was mm. a little bit down the road. And I, I wrote this note, and it's that kind of like, just honing in on the best it could be. So I wrote at the top of this thing, best that today could be and then just started typing and it was incredible how much of that just came to fruition whether i manifested that or was just tuned into that or had that strong intention so rather than worrying about things going wrong or bad or problem solving it's like here's the best it could be two hours from now and so i used that instead of ruminating or
1: that's interesting so so it's like i'm going to be thinking about this anyway I remember you saying this to me once years ago. I was talking about what could go wrong with some elaborate situation. You were like, "Well, if well, if we're daydreaming and telling stories, we may as well tell a nice one." And you were (laughs) like, "What if this happened?" I I found that quite funny and useful. So you say that sort of compartmentalizing is a kind of solution or a tactic or a premature solution. What do we think it's a solution to? What is the problem?
0: Well, I do think there's legitimacy in what that person was talking about. Like it's it's totally it's totally acceptable to have stuff still going through your head at the end of the work day. Mm. And, you know, and especially when you do work that matters, mm. you know, like when it's really personal as our work is, you know, it's, it's stimulating, it's interesting, it's um, agitating, it's, it's, got lots, it's got lots of um, bits in there. Yeah. and I'd, So I think if there's something useful in there, it's really good to hone in on the utility of it. So, I can't, you know, like if it's if it's a tough conversation with a boss, it's like, well, what is actually at the heart of that? Why why did that feel painful when they said that thing to me, or you know, like, and what can I do about it, or who can I take this to? And you know, actually processing, I guess, is different to ruminating, maybe.
1: It's it's a blurry line, isn't it? (laughs) It speaks a little bit to the, um, again, just the challenge we keep coming back to on this show of the personal and the professional being so bound up together. Mm. And so, yeah, whether it's a boss or a colleague, or in this case, I'm assuming it's, they're talking about kind of compartmentalizing connections with clients. Mm. There's an element in which this stuff's going to affect you personally. Mm. You're going to keep thinking about it because as you say, it matters. Because another way of saying that is it's personal. Mm. And I wonder if this is sort of this ideal that we have in our head that we're supposed to be able to have a cleaner line between those two things than we actually do.
0: Yeah, for sure. I do think there's that implicit pressure on us to, yeah, it goes back to something that we often speak about, you know, the real professionals, Mm. it doesn't affect them and they're, you know, Mm. they sort of, yeah, they're not touched by this. Yes, and I have Which thought, I think is a myth,
1: yeah. Yes, I think it's a myth too. And I also have thoughts on that, on sort of the pros and cons on that in a second. But just to kind of stay here for a, for a moment, there, there's something we touched on. Because what I think about when I read this feedback, I thought about my experiences, my time as a peer support worker, Ooh. which I did in two chunks. I managed two chunks of nearly a year each time in terms of really direct support work. I've had sort of support elements to other roles, but that was kind of the most that I could do in terms of that just pure focus on support work. The thing we talked about way back in episode seven, which is an episode we did on, we called it Professional Boundaries and Love. And we talked about, like, I think each of us shared that we we have people we'd worked with who were, you know, in that kind of support work way who are still rattling around our head decades now, later. (laughs) Like I'm talking, yeah, well, yeah, 15 or 16 years later, having the way that a certain person said this thing is still just there in my brain and comes up at the most random moments, much as it does with loved ones. much as it does with old friends. There's just little turns of phrase or little expressions or whatever that are just kind of part of my fabric now, for better or worse. (laughs) 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 And the idea that I could compartmentalize that, I don't... It's almost like the wrong metaphor. Like a compartmentalizing kind of speaks to like, I'm picturing like a, a really perfectly packed like tub of goodies that you're taking away on camping and everything's got its own little Tupperware container. I don't know that that's how my experience works. I think it's much more of a fabric that's kind of weaved and it's rough and frayed in many parts and it's tight and clean in other parts. And there's just a, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the, what the metaphor would even be the equivalent of of compartmentalizing and perhaps it's that there isn't one.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I was, thinking just before is like if you feel like i i want to compartmentalize but i can't then maybe you're not a comp- compartmentalizer, maybe there's other ways you can start seeing these experiences just as you really richly described as a an artistic soul you know you went to a, a woven fabric like is there other ways of of you know, managing the experiences hmm. I, you know and, and also i mean you know you don't want to be kept up at night for sure but there's also a softer version of like, when I think of the words we use, even if we're not in named roles, I think most of us resonate with the, those principles of of peer support, the mutuality, the compassion, the empathy, It's all human relationships, you know, and that's Mm. very different from providing a service of, you know, diagnosing a medical condition and providing a distinct treatment. Those are not, We've got different things at play, so it's it's to mm. be expected.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's go then to the you know for getting into the mushy human stuff. Mm. Let's go then to this fear piece in 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 one of those questions. So the going back to the peer support worker, they said, "Will you know? Will I get better at leaving conversations at work, not taking them home and ruminating on them? Because this is something I fear. As I see it, as the only obstacle that could keep me away from furthering my career." within peer support so this fear piece really being afraid of taking conversations home from work and i'm just really curious about that fear like i wonder if partly what's happening here is that there's this idea that to be a good mental health worker to be professional like we were touching on earlier mean, means somehow being less emotionally affected but my question because so I think we've already said, I think that's maybe a myth. But my question is, how can we be less emotionally affected and still be emotionally connected to the people we're working alongside? And so to me, that leads me to, I want to kind of touch on the other side of this coin, which is the cost of compartmentalizing. Ooh. So here's another quote from, from this is for, again from a lived experience worker. They've written and saying, how do we create a culture Where all are respected first and foremost as humans, where there's compassion and sensitivity for the different ways in which people work and need to look after themselves, in order to be able to bring what they bring, rather than becoming morphed into someone who does what others before them has done, shut off who they are and offer no access to their inner wisdom.
0: Yeah, I think we could write that in sort of six foot letters and and put it in every mental health department service and bureaucracy. In the world, perhaps. That's that's that person's really nailed it
1: (laughs) (laughs) say more what what are you hearing in that quote
0: i think that is you know there's so much in that you say it again
1: i'll go the the yeah the last bit which is like essentially saying how do we bring compassion and sensitivity for the different ways in which we all might work in this space and the different things we're bringing rather than becoming morphed into someone who does what others before them have done, shutting off who they are and offering no access to their inner wisdom.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I love it. I think it's the question that a lot of us are trying to answer because what it speaks to, to me is this real um, distinction between human services, which is what we used to be called, I think back in the day. And. This kind of more aloof, scientific, medico-like approach to human experience, Mm. which I don't think fits the experiences we call mental health, addiction, suicide. I don't think that approach really serves it. So that, that, that question really speaks to that. It's like actually what we want is a human response to a human experience. And because it's human, it's always going to be varied, diverse, courses for courses best fit is the best fit blah blah rather than we're going to end up with some procedural algorithm that'll take us from a to z and that person will be better or cured or functional or whatever gas and term we want to use <laughs> yeah
1: and and i would say we can we can hold that tension without necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that kind of more process focus mm. We'll take whatever we can get, right? Like if we're, in, if we're struggling, we'll take whatever whatever types of service are on offer, but the, the sorts of things that a support worker of any stripe tends to be working in is that grey area. I think that's kind of what
0: we're… Yeah, and also the balance is out, right? You know, first response is the process and first and only response sometimes is the process. Mm. So that should be part of the mix, but it shouldn't be the, the dominant only option.
1: Yes, so often in a support role, we're sitting in the, or we're sitting in the messiness of it. Often with someone who's done all the process things, they're taking the meds, they're seeing the psychiatrist, and nothing's changing or things getting worse. And then here we are as two humans going,
0: hmm. And big shout out to everybody who's in a process orientated service and finding that painful. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I don't think that serves anybody really when it's the only option you know yeah
1: yeah and certainly not saying that those people aren't taking the work home with them either
0: yeah exactly Um, yeah
1: but so going with this kind of thing of of you know how do we how do we not shut off access to our inner wisdom to me what i'm hearing in that is like i say the cost of compartmentalizing Mm. so if we really do try and be a good professional who has a bright red line between personal and professional, what are we losing? Ooh. What are we cutting off? This person's suggesting kind of we're cutting off a kind of access to our own inner wisdom. And I guess we've said this before on the show like, to some extent, being affected, being upset, being hurt by the things we hear from our fellow humans who are really in the shit. Mm. And have often had some fucking awful things happen to them. Being affected by that mm. past the workday is that the trade-off for being present and connected when we're walking alongside them. Can you have one without the other?
0: Yeah, it's probably it's probably always going to be there. And you know, finding good ways to look after yourself in those situations is the you know, as, as one of the other respondents said, like, how do I do that? How do I? I think that's why the, the, the I want to compartmentalize is like I feel if I could compartmentalize it, it'd be better. Mm. But and that might work for some people, absolutely. But it might also be um yeah, how, how you how you design your own program so that you can be fully human in work, out of work, but also get a good night's sleep and not be constantly thinking about work.
1: Well, let's go there, because I've got a question that I've marked for gareth so this is from another support worker they also work as a researcher they've said how do you balance prioritizing your own well-being while also continuing to passionately support other vulnerable people
0: yeah that, that could be in six foot letters too maybe on the exit on the way out of the the office like you know <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and another question in the mix, and this is the title of our episode, a social worker writing and saying, does work-life balance really exist?
2: <clears throat>
0: so, yeah, when you mentioned that that's, that's what we're going to talk about today, all day today I've been like, we've just got it the wrong order. Let's, make, let's talk about a life-work balance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's make, make it that way around, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of us get into this trap of like, if I can just construct my work and not just in mental health, Mm. I think this is endemic. If I can make my work work, then I can have a life. Mm. And I've never found that to be the case. You're solving the wrong bit first. It's like, what does my life need to be good? And then where does work support my life? Mm. And as soon as you, like even just that little, and it's trite and it's cliche, but for me, it's always worked, you know? Um, And I think that's the starting point is, is, yeah, start with what your life needs and then go backwards, like what work would support this.
1: I really want to dig in on this with you. I'll give, I'll give one quick example from my own life just recently <laughs> first, which is I've been having a bit, of, uh, a bit of a time working out the house that I live in with the housemates we've got. There's a constant negotiation of who's getting what rooms and how it all works for us and the crisis of it is the bedroom I'm in, I'm in, I just can't sleep in. It's too loud. I'm a light sleeper. It's too hot. I can't sleep in the heat, blah, blah, blah. And what I noticed is I keep, we keep trying to work out the puzzle of, well, who could have which room? How would it work? And I keep starting with, well, where, where's everyone's office going to be? Because everyone's working from home. <laughs> and I keep starting with that. And then I'm like, and then where will we sleep? And it's like, hold on.
0: <laughs> we need to work out the sleep bit first. Yeah, and I think when we spoke about this the other day, I was like, you need to work out where you can sleep because not getting to sleep will make everything else worse.
1: Yes. So I, I just, I offer that as a, as a simple example of like where it's so easy to start with the, the other way around, the work-life balance, not the life-work balance in really practical ways. So this work-life balance question, the person saying, does it even exist? They've given us some extra information. I want to give that to you. So, so they're kind of trying all the obvious things, I would say. They've said they take regular holidays already. They feedback regularly to the managers at their work about the way the work culture could change Mm -hmm. to better better support this balance. And they've said this, it seems to fall on my shoulders. I need to be better at self-care is a recurring narrative for social workers when really organizations can do a lot better to support their workers and clients. Also family and friends who aren't aware of the particulars of my job or even aware of mental health in general can be really unsupportive. So they're kind of speaking to this this the way we get we talk about it all as like an individual problem. Yeah. But it's so clearly a collective thing. So what do you make of all that? What what when they say does work life balance really exist, what would you say?
0: No. <laughs> no. I don't I don't really know anybody who's who would say they have that. And even when you meet people who are, you know, retired or retired early, or there's something about the, the culture we live in that means the very fact that they are two distinct places, you know, talking about compartmentalization, the very fact that we see them in that way means that I don't think any of us get to really enjoy a day of activity that happens to be paid.
1: So are you saying, so the... the the kind of rigid idea that work and life are different things
0: is mm. what we're getting at yeah yeah you know, we could go back to marx and alienation and blah 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 i think <laughs> fundamentally no but more optimistically i think you can you can find a way to play the game to give you as much joy and contentment as as is possible
1: how have you done that because i've i've watched you on that
0: journey for 20 years yeah and i'm incredibly lucky like i want to start with that recognition of privilege you know as a white well-educated male you know the odds are in my favor the world is built for me so i don't want to underestimate that because the, the 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 trick to it for me was to be self-employed and do freelance work mm. and do do um you know, binge work. So I do projects and when I do projects, I didn't quite full on and then take time. Now, obviously not everyone's in a position to be able to do that. Neither was I. I just bought my first house and I had a child when I decided to the reckless course of freelancing. So, you know, on paper, it wasn't a great, um, a great moment in which to do it, mm-hmm. but it also meant that I worked really hard and learned things really quick because I had to. So that that was a real key for me. And I think... There is something in the cliche if, you know, if you find something you love and a way to do it that you love, then yeah, you don't feel like you're working so much. Mm. Yeah. It's not to say there aren't pressures and challenges, but you feel okay with there being pressures and challenges. Yeah. So that's the kind of simple
2: version. And I do think,
0: I do think really attending to your terms and conditions is an important part of it. Hmm. You know, so whether that's, you know, doing your 40 hours in four days or whether that's working part time or having mixed jobs, whether that's, whether that's a bit of career hopping. So doing things, you know, like you might go and it sounds like somebody was a support worker and a researcher and you might lean into one a bit more for a bit and then almost take like a, an occupational break by going to a different job for a while. Yeah, I think that's so. So when you say, how have you done it? That's how I've done it. Hmm. It's having that varied career. And then at some point along the way, I really, this was when I left Auckland uh, in New Zealand, I really decided that life comes first. And it was a massive gamble because it's like, I will do anything to support the life that I want. And if that means I can't work in this field anymore, then, that, then so be it. My life is more important than my job. Mm. And, you know, luckily I managed to stay connected to the work but I really prioritized my life.
2: What was the hardest thing
1: about that? So you, you talk about the kind of, there's these kind of incremental steps towards more flexibility, having different multiple, multiple part-time jobs and kind of shifting different roles, but then there's this kind of tipping point where you said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing life-work balance. I'm not doing work-life balance. What was the hardest thing about that?
0: Do you know the hardest but actually when you say that? Was everybody else's responses.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because it goes against the grain, especially if you've got some traction in your working career to so then say, I'm, I'm walking away for it. And all I said was, I'm walking away for a bit. My, my tactic in all of this is like, I'll give myself a year and my current life is now plan B. Mm-hmm. So I have to roll back to this situation. Then sure, I know it, I understand it and I can make it work. So if this is plan B, what's plan A? I'll, I'll take a year. And it often seems to be a calendar year. I'm quite a big fan of the the new year shift and stuff. So that's that's how I trick myself into taking bold decisions. Mm. And people's responses to that, particularly because I was essentially leaving. I left two of my jobs. Three of my jobs. I had a lot of jobs. Mm. I left a bunch of them and I left Auckland. And everybody was like, everyone who didn't know me said, you're mad. And Mm. everyone who did know me said, you're going mad again. Hmm, hmm, hmm. and like my family literally sent my dad out i'd have these weird phone calls with my mom and she'd be like oh is, is is your partner there can we just have a quick chat with her like <laughs> 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 so yeah that was really tough because it didn't make sense it only made sense to me mm. Mm.
1: there's also something in here about the what I think is kind of the unsaid part of this often is like there's the the kind of carrot that you're aiming at, right, of this sort of more balanced existence that can feel mythical, like this questioner is saying, does it even exist? And then there's the stick, which is for me, like, I've just found it so hard to be in a job, really of any kind, but I've also chosen hard jobs like being a support worker is a fucking hard job especially for what they pay you like it's you know we talk about on this show so many of the things like about compartmentalizing and how do you go home and get some sleep it's like you're not getting paid for that are you so it's hard stuff and then you add in the mix that for me and i know a lot of sensitive types even just the hours even just forty, you know, just forty hours a week feels like fuck. How, do, how does anyone do that? So there's, there's, there's all these layers there that are, are all. It's like, it's like the push factors of all this, right? Like, the, I would describe it as desperation. Like when I've had jobs, I've had to have like, in, even just in my own mind, a real clear sense of how long I'm going to be doing it for, and it's usually not very long. <laughs> to know I can survive it. Mm-hmm. And then I've had a very similar path to you, largely paved by you, which is like, how do I get more into the kind of contract and and consulting space? And then more recently with Big Fields Club, how do I I just go and make the thing even if I'm not getting paid for it? Mm. So that I'm at least doing, I'm still doing the everyday work that pays the bills, but I'm at least doing the thing that's like, this is the one that's feeding my soul.
0: That's a huge part of it. That like attending to your soul's requirements, I think gets mixed up in the work-life balance. Because yeah. in the work-life balance, apart from the logistics of just getting through the day and getting through the week, there's also this kind of yearning. It's like, and one of the phrases I'm using for my current chapter of my life is, you know, I feel there's a life out there waiting for me, mm-hmm. you know? And I've already got a life that I'm quite happy with, but I feel there's this new way of being. And that yearning, so, you know, in terms of like creating work-life balance is, is giving space for the, the thing. So when I when I left Auckland, the the thing that was calling me is like I have to I have to record an album. Mm. I've got songs, mm. and I want one before I die. I want one in this lifetime. So these are the, you know, because once you're clear, then you can start attending to the logistics. And I do think that is really difficult. And I wanted to say like. When you feel like you can't make those bold choices for your life, you can't do a life work balance because things are genuinely too hard. Mm. The only salvation I've found is in at least accepting that I have got those desires. Mm. Like not fighting myself, you know. So like when I feel that yearning to to live a certain way or be a certain way. Being really gentle with that. Not going, oh, that never happened. You can't do that. Nobody gets to live by the beach and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Being like, I'm the kind of person who wants that. Because not everybody does. Mm. It's a myth. Not everybody wants the same dream. So honoring your dreams and just being very grateful that you have one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though it's painful if you can't live it.
1: I'll throw a Garethism back at you. Mm. So something you've said to me before, which is there's, there's a difference between Making a decision and taking a decision. Mm. So you've you've talked before about how you can make a decision. You can know something needs to change. Mm. You can know this job isn't working for me as it currently stands. I need to change. I need to change jobs. I need to change the way I do it. Maybe be part time, whatever it is. Mm. But you, for whatever reason, can't take that decision yet. As in, you can't actually do the thing. And that can be years in the gap, right? Years between making and taking.
0: Definitely. Definitely. This, this, current, this current phase I'm at, I've, I've held for a long time. And, yeah, essentially waiting for my, my son to go to university. And he went to university and suddenly it's like, oh, cool, okay, all the things that I've been holding and, and nourishing and, you know, dreaming of and having nice little thought exercises about, I'm, I'm ready to do. and. As always, it's not exactly how I thought it'd go. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't, you don't dream about the tough stuff. You only dream about the good stuff. Yeah. But at least I'm getting to do it. There's a part of me that's like, okay, you're doing your thing now. And yeah, you can wait a long time for that. And it's worth the wait.
2: Mm.
0: Like if you can't take the decision, at least honor the decision you want to make. And yeah, be patient. Be tuned into the things that can get you inch by inch closer to that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm feeling into that, this idea of seasons recently. Because mm. so I think back to me, when I first moved to Australia, it's 10 years ago now, and I took a job, mm. and it's the longest I'd stayed at, in one role. I, I, I managed a year and a half, mm. and I almost, like, it, it, it almost killed me. Mm. And I look back at that, and I was so desperate for change. But I didn't, I didn't know how to change. I didn't know. Like I knew I wanted to work in more flexible ways and be self-employed. I had no idea how to do that in Melbourne because I didn't have the contacts. Mm. And I was also just ground down by the job. So like you're ground down by the job mm. and you know something needs to change but precisely because of the job you don't have any energy to do anything differently for a long time. And I had other life stuff going along as well. I was going through a uh, yeah, relationship issues. Like there's just so much in that mix. And I look back on it now, and I'm just filled with a real sense of compassion for that for that younger me, Ooh. because he had made the decision that something needed to change, but he couldn't take it. Ooh. And as part of that, he couldn't really he couldn't. <laughs> What's the word? It's like I couldn't let that be my truth. Mm. I kept trying to talk myself out of it. I kept going, go, no, if I just fucking work harder, I'll build up my stamina, become one of these people who can work four, five days a week. Yeah. I won't be completely ruined. It won't be ruining my relationship. You know what I mean? It's just like this, no, I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to be a, a good
0: professional person. Now, I bought a suit. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, the, most... it's, the, it's the only answer it's hard work harder yeah right you know And I remember when we did some podcasting through the pandemic when people couldn't work so like, I still want to work harder and now I'm going to be a baker yeah you know like I'm going to learn about sourdough <laughs> so it's it's, it's it's a horrible I think we'll look back on this period the way we look back on other civilizations and go what was that about yeah. you know, what a weird thing to be doing with yourselves but, you know, we'll be long gone by then in this, in this body anyway. Um, so thinking back to go full circle to the original um, stuff around compartmentalization, in all of these scenarios, I think writing things down is so powerful. So mm-hmm. whether it's a, a tough recurring theme of a conversation or experience that happens at work, whether it's a yearning for a better life-work balance, Writing it down, externalizing, because one of the people said, You know, I can't afford therapy. And, and yeah, the therapy is very expensive. And neither can I. <laughs> I do mine in short bursts mm. when I can. But writing things down and seeing them outside of yourself is such a powerful approach. Mm. And sometimes even better than sharing it with someone, because you share it with someone, and they've got a lens and they've got a view of you, blah, blah, blah. But to just see your words written down of, of either tough stuff that you're grappling with or hopes and dreams you've got, it's really powerful. Even if you have to rip it up out of embarrassment mm-hmm. or shame mm-hmm. or burn it. I've done some burning, burning of written texts recently that was okay. really beautiful and powerful. Um, yeah, there's something about that. Because when just buzzing around inside yourself, this is why, you know, whatever the, whatever the number is these days, this is why we say, you know, 90% of what we're thinking today we thought yesterday and most of it's garbage and negative. It's just circling round and round and round like leaves in the wind. Mm.
1: Yeah, that, that writing it down, I've been doing a lot of that lately myself. Tender hopes, tender what-ifs. And there is something about having it on the page that, exactly as you say, I don't want anyone to see it, but it's like it's giving it some form it's like it's honouring the making of the decision, even if the taking might be 10 years away.
0: Yeah, and you can't deny it to yourself once it's on, a, on an external bit of paper or device. Mm-hmm. Like when I, when I wrote, you know, the best thing that could happen today and then started typing and I looked at it. It was only like six or seven lines long. It was funny. It went way past the actual meeting. It went into other spaces. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, if, if everything was going to plan, this is exactly what I'd like to see happen. Mm. And you know, like with the magical woo-woo stuff, it's like, oh no, it's happening. Cool. Which I really love. I really, I think there's something about that clarifying focusing process. Mm.
1: I want to finish with one last listener quote. Yeah. And this is from a trainee psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So they've said, how can we change our expectations of each other? So we feel safe to perform within the boundaries of our energy. And don't feel like a failure for having normal emotions
0: and life changes. Going back to the six-foot letters that could be in every, every psychiatry classroom and training environment. That's, that's, that's again a beautiful question. Mm. You know, and I think as with the other questions, it's the asking that matters. The fact yep. that you know, we're asking these. One more time. just, just the...
1: So how can we change our expectations of each other? so we feel safe to perform within the boundaries of our energy and don't feel like a failure for having normal emotions and life changes.
0: Yeah, we've definitely got to start with ourselves. How do we mm-hmm. change our expectations of ourselves to do that? Mm-hmm. I think
2: that's step number one, it
0: feels.
1: I want to name that, going back to that social worker and saying, Does work-life balance really exist? I want to name... They just shared a bit of what they're trying. And it's just like awesome stuff for the collective well-being. So they're saying, "I've, I've involved unions, managers, colleagues in ongoing discussions about potential changes to how we respond to perceived individual problems. I continue to work on holding the organization accountable to their policies and procedures while working with a lot of people on how to change how we respond as an entity. And I've got other messages like that in the inbox too. And there's just something I want to shout out, which is like the people in there asking these questions, <laughs> like not everyone can do that, right? Like I no. I look at that and I go, Fuck, I- oh dear, I'm only just managing to get into work late, but there are people in there doing that. And that's just, even if it feels like they're pushing shit uphill, which I'm sure it does, yeah. there's just something very potent
0: in that and very important. Absolutely, and same, same for the 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 trainee psychiatrist. Like, there's I often think of it a Tuesday for some reason, but there's none of us are going to wake up on a Tuesday and go, "This is it. We've done it." <laughs> these are lifelong questions, and the fact that you know these people are asking them and inquiring about them, and hopefully, let's hope you know. I mean it sounds like the social worker is and, and hopefully the psychiatrist is hopefully sharing that this is a real legitimate question in our not just our workplace but our lives. these are these are really big questions, and we are in the existential business. Mm. So it's good to be bringing that out in our own environments, and you know, I, I guess I guess when you feel like you're in that advocacy position of like how do we how do we make all this better, it's like... Yeah, you definitely need a uh, self compassion and strong self care because you're, yeah, you're advocating, you're talking for talking for the group now, you know, and that's like you say that not everyone can do that, and if you're if you're blessed or cursed by that perspective, <laughs> however you see it, then yeah, you're doing more than your job, so mm-hmm. you, you really need to attend to yourself.
1: Mm. I'm gonna keep trying to say life work balance just to really get
0: <laughs> that one in there yeah definitely just just lock it in and however big it needs to be I I mentioned to to Graham just before we started like am I allowed to mention that I'm just about to go to Bali (laughs) like is that just gonna be annoying and I realized you know after I asked him that and then and he's like yeah sure I was like there is a part of me that feels I should work harder and stick at it and you know, and feel obligated to people that I'm working with right now and all the rest of it. And then there's a partner who's like, I've always wanted to go to Bali Mm. or, you know, go to Southeast Asia in general. Like, yeah, I'm going, (laughs) that's allowed. Mm -hmm. Other people in other worlds go to Bali, particularly in Australia. Every second person I've mentioned to, so I'm going or my cousins going or you know, like there's a bit of an exodus at this time of year. So yeah, I've, I think maybe like a lot of the listeners, and particularly those people that you know we just heard from, I wear this pretty heavy. This work—it mm. feels like mission. It feels like mahi, as, as it gets called in New Zealand, purpose, mm. vocation, whatever. Like, and it's a constant quest for me to wear it lighter. I don't think I'll ever be like, "Oh, it's just a job. It's just work. It's not the kind of work we do." But yeah, finding ways to be like, it's all right to to put it down for a bit, fill fill my cup, and come back at it from a, a fuller place. Yeah, mate. Even just
1: I hear you breathing out as you say that. Mm. It is. It's we say it in every episode now. I think it's weird work. It's hard work. Mm. It's not really work. It's something yeah. else,
2: <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely.
1: You and I have quit multiple times. (laughs) And here we are. My partner and I, she works in mental health too. We constantly fantasize like, what if we just start a whole other career?
0: Something really simple. I've heard mention of laundries. (laughs) Yeah. Can we
1: go and work in a laundromat?
0: No feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd still probably make it a really peer support, advocacy laundromat. Like you know, come in, put your washing, clean your washing, and then clean your soul as well. as <laughs> us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah, it's 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 exactly as you say. The the big questions that we're hearing. It's no wonder we don't have any simple answers, and neither do the people asking. Mm. But um, the asking matters.
0: Oh, hugely. Hugely, you know, whether you call it, you know, reflective practice or critical appraisal, or whatever you want to call it, that is such an important part of our work. Mm. We're changing. Like I know, here in Victoria, we're really purposefully changing. The whole sector has—it's never not been changing. It's never not been okay. So people are asking the right questions in the right way. Oh, that's off to you. Mm.
1: Beautiful. All right.
0: Thank you, Gareth. Can I just do one last thing? I really wanted to acknowledge the survey that's there. This is you know, we'll have you know, if forced to, I will write researcher in the bit that says what's your what's your occupation? And to have an open survey and a place to come and put your thoughts and your your reflections, A is a real beautiful gift, but it's also such a resource. Like the, the insights that we get and the the value that it has in terms of a a place to to record all of that in a really open and generous way. Mm. Yeah, I would really encourage you if you're listening and you feel you've got something to say, we, we want to hear it.
1: Yeah, that's a great shout out. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes for this episode. So if you're on your podcast player, you can find it in the show notes. If you got the email from us, I'll put the link in there. We have this ongoing rolling survey for listeners and any other mental health and addictions professionals with big feelings to just tell us what it's like out there basically and that helps us shape future episodes and events that we're cooking up
0: yeah and then when anybody important asks us we can also say yeah we have got a view of what's happening for for our colleagues named you know designated roles or otherwise yeah I think I think it's it just feels really good that that's available in the ongoing open way that's very different to all the research i've ever been in when it's like you've got three weeks tell us everything (laughs) tell us in these weird scales that don't really make sense and we're gonna quantify it and numericalize it and you'll never hear from us again goodbye (laughs) that's that's most research i've done (laughs) so yeah so thank you graham for providing that i think it's a real beautiful thing
1: yeah and thanks to everyone who's who's responded Awesome. All right. Thank you, Gareth. Enjoy Bali, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Maybe you'll move there and the next one we'll do
0: from there, you know? (laughs) Well, if I write it down, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Cool. Thanks. Okay, cool.